from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. And today, of course, if you're Jewish, is a great day because your, your, your slate is clean. I mean, there's a whole year for you to sin, right? Right? So it's a good, we, we feel fresh, refreshed. I don't, I don't feel the slate is ever clean. Yeah, I also like well, And of course, the traditional understanding is that Yom Kippur repents for sins from man to God, but you have to ask forgiveness for sins from man to man. So I actually really like that. That's that's an element of the Jewish tradition that I, I think is fantastic. It's similar in Islam for Ramadan. Oh, that's great. Well, that's they, good to know. Ramadan is roots are All right. So without further ado, we'll jump into the film and then uh, we'll have a Q&A session afterwards. So thanks so much for coming. And then when I dropped out of medical school to become a filmmaker, I thought this would make a really interesting film about an inescapable situation in which ethics conflict with a central Jewish practice. And how do we negotiate situations in which you find yourself in a, an apparent contradiction of that nature? I don't know if you can negotiate certain things. I think that's eventually you have to decide what's more important. You know? Well, and so one of the things I tried to present in the film is that if you accept the things that I'm saying about circumcision and not everyone does. Some people try to argue with me about the evidence that I present and say, you know, you're biased or this or that. But I think I present a pretty compelling case that this has uh, um, obvious detrimental effects on male sexuality. Um, if you accept that and you accept what the doctors who had no reason to tell me this told me, which is that there are no medical benefits to speak of um, to recommend the practice, then you're faced with a dilemma. Uh, what does it mean to be Jewish? It's exactly what Rabbi Hershey War said. Um, and for some people, the answer to that question is, it means doing what God told me to do. For me, it's not how I see myself. And um, it's not why I'm proud of the Jewish tradition. And so, yeah, I mean, I think you have to, honestly, if you take the information, you have to make that decision. And I, my sort of um, Jewish identity is based very much around a non-fundamentalist understanding of religion. And there are, you can have a consistent position that's fundamentalist, but that's not my position. But most of the academic or the doctoral interview were against healthy. You, why didn't you take any other doctor that's on the other side? You took a mohel, you took your dad, but you didn't take any teacher that think for it, uh, you didn't take any doctor that's for it, and I'm sure there are some people outside there for it. Why didn't you interview them? Okay, so I did um, my best, and this was a very low-budget film, and I made it, part of it was made when I was still in school, uh, but I did my absolute best to speak to experts who I felt were impartial, and I thought, who better to talk to to get an... Wait, 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 let me, let me finish, let me finish, let me finish. Who better to talk to about the medical benefits of circumcision, right, to get that perspective, than a person who performs them on a regular basis, a physician who performs circumcisions on a regular basis. I got two such physicians. I didn't vet them in advance to figure out what they were going to say about the health benefits. I knew that they performed circumcisions, and I asked them, are there any medical benefits? You saw me asking them, and you heard what they said. Oh, but, but I'm, I'm speaking to someone who does it, and they're telling me that there are no medical benefits. So, And I went to two separate experts on that, and then I went to a quantitative expert, completely disinterested party, a sociologist, Edward Lauman, and he told me the same thing. And when I did further research into this subject, what I found was that um, there's a, a sort of fringe opinion in the medical community that this is medically beneficial to the point that we can recommend it routinely. It's a very, very fringe position. The mainstream position today in the medical community, and this is including the American Academy of Pediatrics, is that this is not indicated. While there may be some potential benefits, they're not enough 
to recommend the practice routinely. So I feel that I fulfilled my responsibility to approach this in a balanced way. I sought out experts who performed the procedure on a regular basis and who had no reason to tell me that there were no medical benefits, and that's what they told me. I, I, I'm curious as to how the, the subject of medical benefits even entered into it at all. Because as my recollection of the, the command given to Abraham, medical benefits weren't even considered. And it wasn't until, according from what I can determine from the film, until maybe the 18th or 19th century where criticisms were then brought up. And so this is a response to an argument that didn't emerge until thousands of years after the command was given, and the command was never given, it never indicated anything regarding medical benefits. These are our own impositions that we arrived at as a form of argumentation. And who knows, maybe it's spiritual benefits that God intended. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's the case, I'm saying it's perhaps because God knows and we don't. Well, it's, it's a very interesting story how this became, how the health benefit argument got started. And we talked a little bit about it in the film. Um, it was a late 19th century Victorian fad. Um, the Victorians had very different ideas about sexuality than we do today, of course. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's important to mention that a big part of this had to do with the notion of reducing male sexual pleasure because they saw sex as bad. This harkens back also to the medieval period. Uh, famously, Moses Maimonides, the Rambam, famous Jewish philosopher from Egypt, uh, who's also a, a physician, said that the reason we do this is because it reduces male sexual pleasure so that the man can be freed up to study Torah and to focus on the things he should be focusing on. There were many other medieval commentators who arrived at the same conclusion. Um, uh, but having said that, yes, the, the medical benefits argument is something recent. It's mid to late 19th century when we first start to see it. Um, it morphs. So early on, the rationales given for circumcision are actually, I mean, it's, this is going to sound ridiculous, but this is actual history. Uh, it cures um, paralysis. It cures um, masturbatory insanity. It cures epilepsy. There are all sorts of bizarre theories about the way the human body works and then it started shifting to well it prevents disease prevents this kind of disease it prevents that kind of disease and you heard the history how very interesting and this should give anyone pause about the health benefit argument that every generation in the 20th century had a new favorite reason medical reason for circumcision and it always happened just happened to be whatever the most, you know, scary disease of the time was. So in the early 20th century, it was syphilis. They didn't have a vaccine for syphilis. Oh, well, circumcision, and in addition, they looked at the Jewish community and said, well, Jewish men don't get syphilis as much as Gentile men, so it must be circumcision. Of course, not taking into account all sorts of behavioral <laughs> confounding variables. Uh, then, um, you know, it morphed into when cancer became a better understood um, disease and a scarier disease, um, it morphed into all sorts of, well, it'll prevent penile cancer, it'll prevent cervical cancer. Um, so th just that history alone um, should give you pause and make you understand that um, what this really is, is a cultural practice that collects rationales as it goes along through history. And in order for a cultural practice like this, this kind of a radical procedure, so widespread, to survive in our post-industrial age, you need scientific reasons. Um, part of my mechatonim, I should say, mm -hmm. extended family, um, my, this woman married or got engaged to a non-Jew mm -hmm. and her parents are Holocaust survivors. So it was very important and they're Orthodox, mm -hmm. very important that he was circumcised. And I'm sure he had sexual relations. I can't be a hundred percent sure, but I'm sure he had sexual relations prior to marriage and after marriage. And it would be interesting to talk to several people who have gone through this as adults who would be able to tell you whether or not there is a difference in sensitivity. I and did that in the film. There was one person. And that, I've talked to two people who've 
but to me they didn't you know I don't know maybe that was their own issue well uh, let me just say that <laughs> I don't know how to put this delicately but um <laughs> if a person I'm more likely to listen to someone who tells me that they regret it than someone who tells me that they don't. Okay. For the same reason that um, men are very uncomfortable talking about circumcision this in, is a physician. in general. No, I'm sure. <laughs> That's fine. But men are very uncomfortable talking about the fact that something may be wrong with their penis. So I'm more inclined to believe someone who tells me they regret it. But whether or not they report that... Mm -hmm. The facts that I presented in the film, which have been reconfirmed since I finished the film and have been extrapolated further, are that there is a high concentration of Meisner's corpuscles in the distal ridges of the foreskin. That's a scientific fact. Um, I showed you the slide. I showed you the Meisner's corpuscles. Um, and that, as we know now, is the most sensitive part of the penis. Um, circumcision also immobilizes the penis making sex a much shorter act because you don't have that natural conservation of lubrication and you don't have that mechanical action. So these are these are facts. The people that I've spoken to who've had circumcisions as adults, I would say they also were converts. So for them, it was more important to have the circumcision regardless of whatever change in their sexual life. Maybe they didn't even let it get enter their brain. For sure. Know? And what's much more important than, than whether or not, I mean, it's, it, it's an important component of it because it's, it's testimony for the experiential, the content of a sexual experience. But I, I, I want to point out, and, and I'll, I'll let you go on in, in just a second, but I, I do want to point out there is a world of difference between an adult making this decision for themselves and an, and, and an adult making the decision for an, an infant. infant. And to me, I don't care what adults do to their bodies. If a person reaches the age of majority and they decide that they want to subincise their penis or chop it off entirely or become a woman or, you know, tattoo themselves or scarify themselves, go ahead, knock yourself out. But when we're talking about doing this to someone who doesn't have the ability to consent, we're in very different ethical territory. So on that note, I mentioned earlier, well, would you compare circumcision of a male infant to um, having a baby girl having her ears pierced, a three-month-old girl is being maimed, okay, and in a lot of pain. And I remember at the age of seven convincing my parents that I wanted to have my ears pierced, and I, it was very painful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I still remember mm -hmm. it. So, I mean, is there a difference in I your think, mind? I think there's a difference in degree. Um, I think male circumcision is a much more radical procedure than ear piercing, but in principle, I think it's the same problem. Mm -hmm. I think I don't think you should be, I don't think that parents have the right to make permanent body modifications that are not medically necessary on their children. I, I don't believe that. The well, whole basis for your argument is medical. It's got nothing to do with the medicine. No, no, no. No, no, for some people here in America, it, it is about medicine, I suppose, you know. It's not for religious no, no, reasons. No, no, no. Why, you, why no, you? So says you. What says me? What? Says some of the, the people in your film. No, well, f but first not, of all, no, no. Not okay. That will, uh, that will say they didn't do it for uh, medical. Reasons. Well, like the people who converted no, to a different. No, faith. no okay. Pa pass the microphone because I'm not that's sure what he's. That's all right. I'm not sure what you're talking about. My parents about. did not circumcise me for medical reasons. Why did they circumcise you? As a Catholic. But there is. This goes way beyond the discussion of circumcision. No, it doesn't. It does, because Catholicism does not require circumcision whatsoever. Okay, hold on now. Go back to Paul. Okay, yeah, but to Paul. Let's see, that's what it's... No, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. No, go ahead, go ahead. Do still today have circumcision? Okay. Because they're Americans. Not just in America. Let him speak. No, it's too broad of a subject even. It's not, and I, I'd like to address what you just said, because there are a lot of people in this country who believe that this is a Christian thing. No, it's not. It's, well, I mean, it's... You're saying it was a Christian thing for your parents. What it really comes Catholic, down to is claiming uh, well, Catholic is based on ethnicity rather than on faith. Jews uh, claim uh, religion uh, based on ethnicity. But let's, rather, yeah, I want to focus on what you were talking that's about. That's what I'm trying to tell you. It's too broad of a subject. No, no, no. I want to focus on what you were talking about, why you were circumcised. In, you're saying it was, you're saying it's a Catholic practice, and I'm, I'm telling you. It's following the tradition. Okay, and I'm telling you that, okay, and I, what I want to tell you is two things. First of all, the Vatican is absolutely neutral on circumcision. So 
It's not something that they require of Catholics. And the second thing is, if you understand Christian theology, the notion that Christians have any obligation to any of the commandments in the Old Testament is just not true. That's not how Christian theology works. Christian theology works as follows. Jesus died to save you from your sins. You no longer have to fulfill the Old Testament commandments. That's how Christian theology works. So the notion that circumcision is a requirement for Christians is just contradictory. Yeah, well, along with many other things. <laughs> but my point is, my parents didn't do it for medical reasons. Was it done in a hospital? Uh, Must have been. Yes. Right. Yeah. So it was done by a doctor. Yeah, but not for medical reasons. They had, the mis they had the misunderstanding of Christianity. They thought this was a Christian practice. Okay. Yes. All right. So my point is, getting back to the, 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 when I brought up the medical thing, you were saying, well, because that's why everyone else is doing it. And I'm saying, no, that's not the point. Well, there are some people who have this misapprehension and think that it's a Christian practice. I know that. I think it's just people who are ignorant of their traditions, their faith traditions. But what I was saying before about not doing it, what, what I was, I was outlining a position before, an ethical position, about procedures that parents are authorized to do on their children ethically versus procedures that they're not authorized to do on their children ethically. I believe that if a child is in the very rare, and a boy is in the very rare situation where it's medically indicated that that kid needs to be circumcised, otherwise there is risk for um, all sorts of problems, um, renal infections, whatever. There's some rare cases where that's the case. I think a parent is then authorized ethically and morally to circumcise their child. Absent that kind of absolute medical necessity, I don't think that a parent can ethically choose to permanently modify their child's body in any way if there's no medical reason for doing it. That's the ethical position that I'm trying to outline here. Go back to the religious reason. Yeah, so it's got nothing, again, the whole premise is based on a, a relatively new argument, right. which is medical, and has nothing to do with faith, religion, or anything else. It doesn't, All because it's a human rights that. argument, right. and human rights arguments apply to people who are human beings. Individuals. Are, are you equating you female circumcision? Um, am I equating it? I do believe that there are certain forms of female genital cutting practices that are less severe than male genital cutting, than male circumcision. And so I think it is fair to say, and again, this is a continuum, right? So if we talk about type 4 female genital mutilation, in which it's complete infibulation, obviously that's a more radical procedure than male circumcision. If we talk about all sorts of type 1 female genital cutting practices according to the WHO's classification, especially type Roman numeral one, small letter A, those are less radical than male circumcision. You are, you are in a sense equating the two. I think I don't and see a difference. Yeah, I don't see a difference. Um, female genital mutilation is often seen by Westerners who aren't too well informed as the total l removal of pleasure of sex for a woman. That's not true. Women can still have orgasms with all types of female genital mutilation. That's my understanding. They still can have sexual pleasure. And Kinsey showed that sexual pleasure can be transferred to other parts of the body in cases of infirmity and illness and so on. So the, the need for sex and sexual pleasure seems to be fundamental to the human body and it can make changes if it needs to. But that's not really what we're here about. I'm just pointing out that, for instance, women can have, let's say, a rich, complete and full sexual experience while circumcised men, as one man complained, are left with the ability to ejaculate and impregnate. And why aren't we, why are we denied a full, rich, and complete sexual experience by the American practice of circumcision? And I thought that was a very good question. So I just wanted to bring that in. Any, any other questions or comments? Well, just to comment about what you said, I haven't seen any studies, you know, exactly how many women, you know, uh, orgasm without having their clitoris and all of this kind of stuff. I'm sure that many women don't enjoy sex when, these things are done. I mean, I know someone from the Middle East who told me his daughters have been um, circumcised, but just their clitorises have been taken off. 
And the external clitoris, of yes, course. Yes, the external. Because you know, it, it does go why into Why I had a bit of an argument with him about it. Uh, to lessen the sexual desire, supposedly. Personally, I don't believe that it lessens anyone's sexual desire. Maybe it makes the act a little less uh, exciting, but the person still has what's inside of them. Right. You know? Right. Well, so, and, and you raise a very important point, because sex and sexuality is a really complex subject, and I would hate to reduce it just to the physical. Right. Having said that, it's impossible to alter form without altering function. And I do think that, I, I just speaking to your point about, um, you know, studies and whatever, there is a study that was an anthropological study, okay, so this is not um, necessarily a sort of scientific sociological survey, but an anthropological study done by, uh, is it Lightfoot Klein, is that her name? I don't know her work specifically enough to say. Okay, well, there's an anthropologist, I believe her name is Lightfoot Klein, and she went and spoke actually in the Sudan to women who had type 4 infibulations mm -hmm. and he found that they were still enjoying sex uh, she found that they were still enjoying sex and having orgasms so even the most radical form and so how is that possible if they ablate all the sexual tissue apparently the cutting practices don't get everything um so they still have a little bit a left complicated topic that maybe we shouldn't be having now you know but it's like it's a very large topic and there are a lot of women who don't have pleasure, but you know. And and I th and it should be mentioned a lot of men who are circumcised and the guys who but you saw. there are men who are uncircumcised. I'm sure have issues and you know. Yes, however, um, I, I and granted this is anecdotal, but it's important to talk about this because when you talk about women who don't have sexual pleasure due to cutting practices, mm -hmm. the guys who restore. Right? It seems like a very extreme thing to do. It takes between two and four years to regrow that skin. You're not really getting back the nerve endings. Um, why did they start? All the guys that I spoke to who are restoring, when I asked them why they started, this is across the board. They all said to me they were not feeling anything from their penis anymore and that they were basically not able to enjoy sex because of it. Now, when you remove between 60 and 65% of the nerve endings in a penis, some percentage of the population, of everyone, some percentage of the population are going to have that experience. Mm -hmm. That's just, and, and again, there's biological variability, but there you have it. I don't know what God meant for circumcision to be, but perhaps God meant for it to be subdued a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> you, so you think this has to do with God wanting people not to enjoy sex? Not let's oh no 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 let's let's not not enjoy but let's not have it take over one's life. But why would it? Yeah, but that hasn't. Like the point that you mentioned about Maimonides, I thought was very right because I mean, sorry. Now you mentioned Maimonides. I can't remember the exact quote, but you know, well, I mean, for me, sex is not just about the function and the enjoyment mm. it's there's a spiritual aspect as well mm. and i think that in our society today it's so concerned about i mean sex and and just you know instant gratification and all of these things and what about the spiritual aspect about things i mean um circumcision has this it is not just uh you know cutting the foreskin there's a spiritual aspect to the whole thing and it affects the person just like you know um something that's not as controversial women going to the mikvah to the to bathe now some people think that oh it's horrible for women to be considered unclean but it's not about i mean okay there's a physical uncleanliness but really it's about spiritual uncleanliness and you know men go to the mikvah as well they can go every day if they want to it's about something spiritual mm -hmm. it's not so i think we in our society today have too much focus on sex on you know all of these uh physical needs and there's nothing wrong with maybe things being a bit subdued and thinking more about the spiritual and the what's inside more anyway that's my you used the word intimacy yeah and you used it to mean sex when did i use the word intimacy i don't usually use that word you, you, you in the film somebody used the word or you did here intimacy and it was equated to sex and to me intimacy is a much greater thing i mean it's about being close to somebody spiritually okay so i want to respond to what you were saying and then I'll, I'll try and respond to what you just said um 
Mikva, I have no problem with mikvah. Mikvah doesn't hurt anyone. Um, I have a no, no, and I I understand what you're saying. Um, I don't buy the argument that this spiritually perfects the body. I I just don't buy it. I also think that it, um, or that you know the person is even aware. Like if you're circumcising an eight day old boy, the the whatever value that that practice has for that boy is not something that they're aware of. They're not aware at eight days old. If you were, if we were talking about a coming of age ritual, as happens in other cultures, mm -hmm. then maybe you'd have a point to saying this is a coming of age ritual. They understand they're going through this painful thing. It's part of their, you know, growing up and becoming a member of the tribe. That's not what this is about. This is being done to eight-day-old babies. But as your well, father are they aware mentioned, or aren't they aware? Because on one hand, you're saying the problem is it's yeah. causing them pain. physically. They're aware. And then you're saying, well, they're not aware of it. Which one is it? It's causing them an enormous amount of pain. They aren't able to... Pro I mean, we can talk about the psychological impacts of, of, of affecting a trauma on an eight-day-old baby of this nature. We can go there. But what I'm well, saying is... What I'm saying... <laughs> no, I'm sorry. And birth is a traumatic... Birth is not necessarily traumatic. Why do we give mothers circumcision? Okay. You haven't given birth to a child. Why do you think a lot of doctors? Well, what doesn't make sense to me is an argument that would somehow suggest that anything we do to a baby is okay because it's not just anything, and it's not just random. You know, there's no. You're causing pain. You're caught. You're cutting off a part of their body. So I don't buy that argument because to me. It's not okay to do just anything to a baby, especially when the consequences are lifelong. I don't think you can permanently scar a baby just because they happen not to be able to understand what's happening to them at po in that point in time. I don't think that's a legitimate ethical argument. Well, I, they can't remember it consciously and recall it. That's still irrelevant. I liked what your father said. This is really part, you're bringing the child into the community, you know, and that's really what it is. It's true, the child doesn't know in his brain what's going on he might feel the pain but he doesn't know but yes you the father or whoever the father is bringing the child into the community that's sort of the importance of it well it's the importance for the parents for the parents right yeah. and it's not a that's why i'm saying it's not about the, the body of the individual the it's not yeah. about the body of the individual it's a ritual that has been linked to bringing a child into the world and into the community but i would you know go back and ask just like Heshi Warsh asked in the film, well, where does that leave girls? Well, again, it's a patriarchal, okay. patriarchal religion. It is. Well, patriarchal so religion. We and, and then we have, we have a situation, and I'm sure you know this, when a family gives birth to a boy, it's a much bigger deal than when a family gives birth to a girl. So you have all sorts of ramifications. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, and where did um, Carol go? Um, all right. Are you editing that? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Because um, I wanted to respond to what she was saying. Well, I mean, I just, on that note, um, I had a, I have a six-year-old daughter, and I'm not married, and my family's Orthodox, so you can imagine <laughs> what that was like. And, um, but I, I was, felt very blessed to have a girl, because then I didn't have to deal with the whole big deal that people make with a boy and then asking me this and that, you know what I mean? But I really wonder, I mean, a lot of this to me, especially when you talk about um, the sexual issue, is I think there's a lot of it is psychological for the men, no? No. I think sex is always gonna be a deeply, well, I think sex is always going to be a deeply psychological okay. issue right. for anyone and coming to terms with the fact that an important, nay, an essential part of your penis was cut off and you had no say in the matter, in and of itself presents a psychological issue. Right? If you are aware of it, if it's yeah. brought to your attention, which is part of the reason that I don't take an enormous amount of joy going around showing men this film, because on a certain level, the information in this film will make a man feel sexually inadequate. That just that's that may happen for a lot of people and that's not something I take pleasure in. The only solace I take is in knowing that people who see this will be less likely, hopefully, to engage in this practice and perpetuate it on the next generation. I know I'm just saying this as a woman, but I don't see how they would feel less whatever virile or manly. I just I wanna 
open my whole sexual life here well to maybe you. sandy can you know but it's just like for me i prefer to be with a jewish man i just or circumcised i just, like you know i feel we're talking about this but that's just wait which that's very different do you prefer to be with a jewish I man do, or a circumcised man um circumcised jewish man but i do circumcised is preferable to me and i think it's much more attractive all right sandy do you want to respond to that because i sandy can address well sandy can address some of the psychological issues that you you might have trouble understanding at this point it it, you have to realize this is a huge deal for a man because it's roughly three quarters of the nerves of the penis and all the specialized nerves. You are left with touch receptors for basic pressure, no stretch receptors. So in a woman, the stretch receptors would be the labia minora, right? So imagine taking the full length of the labia minora, cutting those out and and stitching what's left back together and removing the clitoris. That would be about maybe equivalent to a male circumcision because male circumcision removes 20,000 nerves and all the stretch receptors clitoridectomy only removes 8,000 nerves. Sandy, if, if you don't mind, and I don't want to put pressure on you, but I'm, if, if you're comfortable, I'd yeah, like I for will. you to share your own personal... I will do this, because I wrote down here that the Jews are a traumatized people. I think circumcision is traumatizing, and in a sense, it is the, the trauma that binds them, just like hostages can be bound by their traumatized experience. They still... Right, but Aside from that, I used to be angry about this. I thought, all these Jews are, but they are all misinformed by the rabbis that lead them. The rabbis have buried this information about sexual damage and, and left it behind. They don't want to share it. I mean, we saw in the film, rabbis are all about it's medicine, it's healthy, or it's a covenant, but none of them want to address damage. And when I started restoring my foreskin, I was not the first one to do this. Okay, 10 years ago, somebody in Pittsburgh started this, so I had a little bit of guidance, and it went much faster for me. And I took some tape, as they mentioned, and you tape it and you stretch a little bit, whatever you can pull on. No skin grows in a month, nothing. But what happens is the skin along the length of your penis, near the base especially, it all gets loosened up and mobile. What was attached to the underlying tissues is now movable. And all of a sudden, there's a whole suite of nerves that say, hey, I'm here. Now, who would have thought that? I mean, I've had those nerves for 40 years at that point. And all of a sudden, they're sending signals that I never had before. But and Sandy, why did you start? I, you know, I saw this on the internet, and I saw foreskin restoration. I thought, there's wackos out there for everything. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, just crazy people. You can find all these crazy people on the internet. But when I hit 40, all of a sudden I realized I didn't feel anything really in my penis anymore and it was hard to maintain an erection, to have sex, to have intercourse. It can be fairly pleasurable, but all of a sudden I'm feeling nothing. And I realized my fingers and my hands were more sensitive than my penis and thinking as a scientist, which I am, I thought, how the heck can this be? And then I tripped over foreskin restoration again and I found the local guy who was doing this and I started taping and four weeks later these nerves woke up and I said oh my gosh this is not a false thing it's a, it's something that's very real and I hadn't grown any skin yet and I thought what would it be like to have an entire real foreskin intact left on my penis I'll never know but I want my penis covered and soft and protected and sure enough if you get far enough along all of a sudden all the dead calloused skin like you get on your penis that after 40 years it fell off and I had a pink penis again so and it's much softer and sensitive there are pictures comparing the two and one's like pink and beautiful like a baby's bottom and the other one's sort of yellow and and calloused it's it's a huge difference. so and what I the reason I asked Sandy to share this story um, is because that is the exact same story that I've heard from every man who's restoring and what I think that speaks to is that you know whatever you think about this anecdotal evidence i think it's important i think that when you're circumcising the vast majority of boys born in a country some percentage of them this is going to happen to them and this is part of the effects of the practice on a large scale that need to be discussed openly 
So I think it's really, thank you very much for sharing. I don't know, it seems that with aging, you know, for me, I mean, I'll talk, talk directly. I would not want to have sex for sex sake anymore. Okay. You know, companionship, the importance of true intimacy is the only thing to me that enhances that act at all. Right. That's that's great. But what does that have to do with whether or not another well, person has a, a woman, right to their as body? As a woman, yeah. if I had sex with no intimacy, I have no feeling. Okay. Sensually. No, no, and no one's denying no one's denying that part of it. What I'm saying, but that has nothing but that's to do with emotional. But that's, that has that has nothing to do with what we're talking. about. What we're talking about is whether an individual male has the right to a complete body. That's the bottom line. But the issue of um, that's mentioned here, one of the main issues is that men sometimes lose the the function. You know, they they have less right. sensitivity. I mean, that's. So, and so I, I understand, even though I'm quite a bit younger than you, I do understand what you're saying. No, but I mean, there's a, I mean, the, uh, I should mention this also. There's a, there was a Dutch study that was done. Um, this just came out this spring. Large population-based study on um, the sexual effects of circumcision. And they looked at people in um, Denmark that were circumcised and people who were not circumcised. And what they found was that the people, the population, this is thousands and thousands of people in the population of people who were circumcised there were higher levels of trouble reaching orgasm mm -hmm. um, and certain kinds of sexual dysfunction, including painful sex for their partners, mm -hmm. that the circumcised population had higher levels of these issues. So there's a growing body of evidence beyond what I've indicated in my film. And this is, again, so important. Of course, sex is a complex issue. Of course, intimacy is more than just the body. But if you make a radical change to the body, that's going to have repercussions. And the question then becomes, does an individual have a right to make that kind of a decision for themselves or for another person? Right. I think that circumcision is a primary contributor to impotence in America or wherever it occurs. I mean, intimacy and all this stuff, emotions, you can have all that, but if you're physically damaged, you are gonna suffer. And I think that that occurs mu in much higher rates for circumcised men and, and earlier. And since, I mean, I, it may be. Yeah. I try to limit myself to data that I can share with people that's sort of beyond dispute. Even when I'm, even, even when I'm talking about experience, like, when a person tells you, I got circumcised as an adult and I regret it because I have trouble getting erections now, that's important. Um, it may not be as objective as some, of, as some of the other data I'm bringing, but again, I try to um, limit myself to the things that I can actually show and talk about with someone who might not even agree with me on the religious side of this. Um, I, we don't have the tools to determine what extent circumcision plays in impotence in the United States. We just don't have the tools. It may be. It, it's plausible. I mean, there is data for this because it occurs about seven years earlier. It also depends on sexual frequency. No, but there's so many confounding variables, Sandy. Know, but there's, there's just emotional. low sexual frequency and lots of marital fighting produce impotence. Well, a lot of women don't enjoy sex and can't look at it. Yeah, no, no, that's, no. But that's very American. If, they are, if their partners are intact, they have multiple <laughs> orgasms easily. In America, yeah, it's quite a challenge. No, 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 no. It, it is. It is very difficult. And I, I, I absolutely, I absolutely admit this. It's very difficult to talk with any kind of precision about the content of sexual experience. There have been strides made um, in talking about what the difference between circumcised and uncircumcised or circumcised and intact sexual experience is. Um, Ken McGrath, who's a pathologist in New Zealand, recently uh, talked about a very specific effect, a neurological effect that he then connected to uh, an experience that all circumcised men have that intact men don't have. So we're starting to get better. But of course, when you talk about something like impotence, and especially because such a large percentage of men who are impotent are impotent because of psychological reasons, teasing out the different factors that contribute become almost impossible. impossible. But... The fact that talking about something is difficult doesn't mean that you can just get away with it or that it's okay or that it's ethically permissible. And that's, again, we keep coming back to this human rights issue. And human rights 
I believe should apply to all people, all human beings. I'm a, I'm a believer in this way of framing civilization. I see where you're coming from. I am totally against female circumcision. Okay. Because I believe, it, well, it's cultural, but I also believe from what I've read true, true enough that it was um, Toni Morrison, I believe, okay. wrote a book on female circumcision. And that denies the woman all pleasure, mm. depending on the type of circumcision that they get. That's disputed, but that's disputed, but it's commonly believed. It's but commonly you, believed. I just yeah. wanted to throw in a comment when you guys were talking about this earlier. That uh, and you were talking about there's women that had even I think you referred to it as a class four, mm -hmm. which is a radical and that still experience pleasure. Mm -hmm. And then you were saying something I can't remember what it was right now, but there's women who've never been even close to circumcision. That don't, don't, don't experience, experience any pleasure during, so, yeah. you know, it, uh, it, it's almost impossible to quantify any of that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, the way I like to and think... It is, I believe, emotional, psychological... An analogy that I upon my own make spirit. that I try to help people to understand this is, <laughs> if, I, if, if I break my nose in a skiing accident, okay? I'm skiing downhill and I slam into a tree and I break my nose and I lose my sense of smell my loss of my sense of smell will undoubtedly have an impact on my ability to enjoy food. Can I quantify exactly what that loss is? No. Is it 80%? Is it 60%? You know, who knows? We don't have the tools to go in and say, he lost his sense of smell, therefore he's not gonna be able to enjoy this and this and this, and these are the precise ways in which he's not, but does that mean that there's not a loss? Of course not. If you damage the nervous system in a profound way, you're going to experience a loss of some kind of experience. I have a sort of a short comment and a question about your family. Um, you know, this, this circumcision sort of dates way back to the Egyptians with a god that hated foreskins, and it might have been the mark of a slave. Maybe Jews are God's slaves in a sense. There's some talk about following God's request. But, you know, this whole argument that I've heard here in this community today, it, 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 it goes right back to what I dislike most about Judaism, is that this is magical thinking. And it's why I left Judaism. We don't know what God wants, we just have to do it. But circumcision kills two or 300 kids a year in America due to bleeding, infection, I don't know all the terms, but kids, 300 kids a year, roughly, die in this country. So that's like one every, every working day, we lose a child due to circumcision, roughly. And that's real, those are numbers. And these benefits, spiritual or otherwise, that's magical thinking, it's all made up to stuff. To you, it's magical thinking. It is magical thinking. Well, uh, do you get to and your question, please. the Andy. physical damage is real. The trauma is real. The fact that infants go into shock and they feel pain is real. And I think we're, we're dealing with potential benefits of magical thinking versus real trauma and real damage. And I just see that as the essential issue. Here. What was your question about my family? Uh, your dad and your brother are, it's remarkable how you interact with them in the film. And I, I think your dad has been on tour with you, which again, I find remarkable considering the breadth and, of the conversation. Where are they at now with this story? Because your brother, clearly you've educated him and, and influenced him in some sense. And I wondered, do they see this and have they continued to look into it or have they looked, looked elsewhere and they don't want to know? Are they open-minded? Well, so my father um, has been very supportive. Um, There's a really beautiful moment of humanity at the end of the film that you saw coming from him, which was a very healing moment for me, especially around this subject. Uh, and he's continued in that vein ever since I finished the film. He's helped me. He's been on panel discussions with me. He's very supportive of my work. There's a social cost to him being supportive of me on this issue, um, which he bears gracefully. And I'm, I'm very thankful about that. Um, I don't know that he's 
changed his position. Um, you know, I don't, I think he'd probably still do it again, but I can tell you that right after the film came out, his first grandson was born and he was an absolute wreck that day. Mm. And, uh, the day of his first grandson's bris. And he told me that it was because for the first time he was thinking about this from the baby's perspective. And so I thought that was beautiful. My brother Naftali <laughs> is a really great guy. He's a shaman in training right now. Um, sort of completely left the Jewish tradition behind. Um, but has done a lot of very deep exploration into the human condition and human psychology and helps people. He's a hypnotherapist. Uh, he helps people get over addictions to smoking and insomnia and things like that. And um, he has stated to me in very categorical terms that he, he thinks this is a horrible thing. He would never do it to his son. Um, and he's very much against circumcision. For him, it's more about the um, spiritual and psychological effects of creating a trauma like that on a baby. And that, from his sort of perspective, he's much less empirical than I am about things. But for him, it's the spiritual and physical harm and psychological harm done when you're doing something that traumatic to an eight day old baby. That's the real thing that says to him, you know, I can't, I can't, this is, this is terrible. Uh, so, so that's where they're at. Um, you'll notice that, um, my mother was absent from the film. Um, although there's some very strong female characters in the film, my mother is not one of them. And I had asked her to participate and she refused. My mother is a religious fundamentalist and, um, ultra Orthodox Haredi, um, her, she comes from a family of rabbis and, um, she's very ashamed of, of my work. So, uh, that, so she wasn't in it and she's only ever said 10 words to me about the subject she hates when it comes up in conversation. And those 10 words were, do you think it's easy for Jewish mothers? <laughs> we leave the room. And that, that's all she ever said to me. About your dad, that he was feeling very emotional about his grandson's bris. I I mean, I don't know. I don't have a son, but I can imagine for every mother, every mother thinks about the baby. You know, I mean, that's maybe the difference. And fathers too. Well, okay, fine, fathers, fathers too. Fathers from the, I'm sorry. From <laughs> I don't mean to exclude. Yeah, but just I, I, I can imagine, you know, to, to feeling the baby and being upset that the baby's crying and all this kind of thing. I would guess that this is just beginning. I mean, that what you're documenting as cultural norms in society doing harm, this is just being seen by a few and accepted by a few now. Yeah. I had um, the pleasure in Austin, Texas on this tour of having a member uh, uh, on the panel discussion of having uh, Janet Heimlich, uh, who is a former NPR reporter and recently published a book called Breaking Their Wills. And her book is about religious child abuse, many varieties of religious child abuse um, that occur in the United States. She has a chapter in her book on male and female genital cutting practices. And by the way, female genital cutting practices do still occur in some communities, even though it's illegal in this country. Um, and what was amazing to me about that, of having her sitting right next to me, um, was that it's exactly what you're what you're talking about, Carol. She was able to contextualize this one religious abusive practice in the larger context of religious abuses of children. And I asked her, you know, when you were watching the film, did the people who were talking about why they circumcise, did any of their language sound similar to what you hear in other instances of religious child abuse? And she said, absolutely. She gave me a few very concrete examples. You can listen to the podcast if you're interested to, to hear what she said about that and where the instances of similarity, the, the touch points were. But I do think that this is part of a larger subject, and I think um, we all need to take stock um, on a very... Um, general level, this has to do with the things that we do to children and the things that we do to infants. And I, I think that not enough attention has been paid to this from an ethical perspective. So if you think about it for a second, the way I like to frame this is um, parents make decisions for their children all the time. Hundreds, maybe thousands of decisions every day. How long is their hair going to be? When to cut their nails? When to give them a bath? 
all sorts of decisions, when to vaccinate, whether to give them antibiotics. Some of those decisions are morally neutral. I would say how long a child's hair is for the most part is morally neutral or when, when their fingernails are cut. Some of them are morally good. Like if a child gets infected, um, giving them antibiotics, that's a morally good parenting decision. And some decisions are morally wrong. But let's, I'm going to take child abuse as we know it in this country. Forms of hitting and hurting, physically hurting okay. a child. Not circumcision, but beating. You want to draw a distinction between No, no. I'm just saying it took generations of parenting and for that that practice to begin to be questioned and come to a slow end. When I was growing up, and my father must have been a bit extreme. I got beaten from the time I was seven years old three times a week on yes. the average. I'm very sorry to hear that. However, the upside is that it made me. It, it, it made me a very humble person. And it made me, yes, it made me concerned for the human condition. And it probably made me feel closer to God in many respects. I don't know if I'm making any sense. Perhaps this too is going is going to have to go through an evolutionary process. Oh, I hope so. I'm just trying to help. I it don't along. know. I I I don't know whether it will because child abuse, as I understood it, is not part of religion. Well, that's unfortunately not. If if you read Janet's book, Breaking Their Wills, um, unfortunately, it's that's not the case. Many people use religious justifications for all sorts of physical abuse to children, starving them, beating them. Um, so I think, but I, I, I do want to acknowledge something about your story because I'm moved. I'm very sorry that you had to go through that. Um, but I, I, I really admire that you don't view yourself or that your identity isn't wrapped around being a victim because I think that that speaks enormously to, to, to the steel in your spine. Yeah, I gave it up about 15, 20 years ago. I think I was a victim. Obviously, I was a victim. But giving up victimhood was an enormous step for me. That's admirable. I thank you all so much for your questions and for a spirited discussion. If you'd like to purchase a DVD, they're on sale. I take cash or any major form of credit card. And uh, thanks so much for, for having me. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com. 